Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Electronic Wireless Show. I'm Brendan. We normally do a weekly podcast and we have done that as usual. You can find episode 24 on SoundCloud, Pocket Cast, iTunes, all the rest of the places that it usually pops up as well as our website rockpapershotgun.com. But we're also giving you a bonus this week. This week we've interviewed Zach Barth from Zachtronics about that studio's new puzzle game Opus Magnum. If you don't know what that is, it's a game in which you perform alchemy on a small hex-based board. Uh, you make machines that kind of move elemental atoms around uh, to create gold or poison, or sometimes you're just making hair gel. That same studio, they also made uh, Shenzhen IO, Infinifactory, Space Cam, among a few others you might have heard of if you like these sorts of puzzle games. Uh, so I spoke to Zach about some of those past games, as well as his time at Valve, and why he sold his company to get rid of what he calls the stress of owning a studio. So here you go. Okay, so I'm here with Zach Barth from Zachtronics, the creators of Opus Magnum, and among other things. It's based on an earlier game, isn't it? The Codex of Alchemical Engineering, I think it's called. Yeah, I, I guess it's. I'm. I'm actually not entirely sure to what degree it's like a sequel or a remake or inspired by. Like it's, it's definitely not a sequel, right? Because it's it's just very different and it has no like continuity with it. Um, it, it's possible it's a remake, except like it's actually the mechanics are, like it shares some mechanics very closely, and then other mechanics it, it's very different on. The reboot. Yeah, I guess I don't. Yeah, I don't really know the name for it. It's 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 very much its own game. Why Why did you decide to return to it though? Oh, I I liked the idea, and we didn't have <laughs> we had been working on another project for like a couple months, and and it wasn't working, and it was just like oh fuck, we need to make a game, and uh, <laughs> and so this was oh god, um, back in like 2013 when we wrapped up Ironclad Tactics, we were gonna start work on what was sort of like a, like a, another engineering game about alchemy that was sort of like a, a sequel to Space Chem. Or not like a like a spiritual successor to Space Chem because Space Chem had done you know pretty well. It was like our launch title. We we did Ironclad Tactics, which is a very different game, and I think a lot of people were expecting us to make another game like Space Chem. And so it, we were thinking like, okay, maybe it'd be maybe it'd be good. Maybe it'd be fine for us to revisit. Oh, I, sorry. I guess the thing that we should also put in there is that so uh, Space Chem did did pretty good, yeah. and Ironclad Tactics we assumed would just do way better, right? And when it came out, it didn't do way better. And so I think that was sort of the thing that that led us to believe that hey maybe we could just make another game like space game and it would be okay like maybe it's okay to make these kind of weird programming games and and so in that mindset we were thinking okay well let's make this you know we could we could make another game about alchemy because it was fun you know like the codex like the alchemy stuff in codex is fun it has the same mechanics as space chem but without like the boring chemistry aesthetic and uh so this is back in 2013 but we actually ended up not making that project and we made infinifactory instead um okay and so this is sort of just like was you know so it's been sitting in like our idea bank since 2013 and uh, and when our, our little research project we were doing didn't pan out we needed to make something and uh, and that's when your idea bank comes in handy. What was the what was the thing you were working on for then a couple of months or do you not want to say? It's not if I if I describe it people will be like oh that sounds like the best idea you know and no it was it was lousy and it sucked so <laughs> there's a reason we didn't pursue it further. It's not it's not a mystery it just wasn't a good idea. Fair enough. Um, you you must have been inundated with gifts of people's machines and stuff like that. Like, is there what's what's the craziest thing you've seen by a, made by a player so far? Oh, I don't. I mean, so the funny thing is, a lot of the gifts are are people playing the game in a very conventional way, 
And, and this is the thing that I think is so funny is that there's a lot of people on like the, the subreddit is almost entirely just gifts and yeah. lots of people, there's lots of people posting gifts that like their solutions aren't that special, but they're unique and they're theirs. Right. And so I think it's like, I think that kind of speaks to the power of like these open-ended puzzles is that like even people who aren't like fucking breaking the rules and pushing the limits are actually still immensely proud because they really have made something that is their solution to the puzzle. Mm-hmm. And, and they're showing it off. And like I, I think in the past people only tended to show off stuff when they like did crazy things, right? But we've made it so easy and so accessible that it becomes this thing where everybody can show off what they're working on. <clears throat> and so from my perspective, most of what they're doing is actually kind of boring, but like they're just playing the game <laughs> as intended, you know? But I think that's like that's great. Like that's that's really great. And I love that people feel like attached to their solutions even when they're just kind of playing the game normally. Like that's the experience, and I think that's really like that's Opus Magnum in a nutshell. Is that we had this experience that was sort of exclusive to our high-level players because most players just got stumped by even the base, most basic of things. We wanted to take that experience of what it's like to be a high-level player and make it accessible to everyone. So everybody gets to optimize an Opus Magnum. Everybody gets to solve the puzzles. Everybody gets to share something that they're proud of building. Yeah, it's like it's that weird thing. Uh, when people land on a planet in No Man's Sky, they share it thinking this is amazing. It's it's definitely <laughs> cool, but really it's not that different from anybody else's. It's just it's just that you're there. Pictures of your kids. Um, in in previous games, you did a thing where you'd have like a binder or a manual, and it would have obscure instructions of how to do something. Um, yeah. For instance, in TIS 100 or Shenzhen IO. Yeah. Um, but you've dropped that idea entirely for Opus Magnum. What? Why have you dropped it? Oh, we haven't dropped it. That's only two out of five of our puzzle games have manuals. So uh, <laughs> that yeah, well, is a... why. Why haven't you continued it? Sorry, I should say. Oh, because it's it's not. It wouldn't be appropriate. It's so the the manual. There's there's like a couple different forks of Zactronics games, right? Like Spacechem was like the build a machine that builds stuff kind of game, right? And then like Infinifactory was sort of more in that way. Um, and Opus Magnum is also a build a machine that builds stuff. A TIS 100 and Shenzhen are actually fairly different in that you don't build a machine, you're just writing code. Like you're literally just straight up writing code, and that moves around data rather than stuff and transforms data in a way that it's hard to transform stuff. That's sort of the beauty of making a game that's just straight up assembly programming. As there's like stuff that if you tried to do like a physical metaphor, it would be really hard to explain. But if you're just like, ah, it's code, like it makes total sense. And so the the games that are about explicit programming, I think that the the manuals are actually a much better way to teach it because like coding is all textual, right? And like what better way to teach textual stuff than with documents? Um, it also kind of brings the the data to life, right? That we can say like here's a set of numbers, and that's actually really boring, you know? And like that, but that's your product, like that's what you're working with in Shenzhenio is just a set of numbers, and you're going to transform it into another set of numbers. And like in Infinifactory, you get to see a spaceship, like you're literally putting a spaceship together, and transforming a set of numbers is way boring by comparison. And so um, the data sheets are a way to like turn the take the data and turn it into something real. That instead of just it being a set of numbers, it's actually a set of data describing like specifications for a mining machine. And so we we dedicate a page in the Shenzhenio manual to this like just chart of numbers. But we kind of like try to bring the numbers to life and make it like a part of the story. About that story as well. About that story. Um, th- this is something that happens in a, a few of your games. There's always a, a there's often a story embedded in it. Always to drive what the what the what the people are doing or what you're doing as your character. Um, Absolutely. And sometimes your character will find themselves making something unsavory, as in Shenzhen. I think it's implied. Sometimes it's implied you're making stuff with military applications, like some of the diagrams. It feels like you're making something that oh, will yeah. be used in the field. 
and in Opus Magnum, you yeah. end up, you end up making weapons as well. Um, Absolutely. Why why is that a recurring theme in your games? There's uh, there's two answers. Uh, the the dumb answer is that I I think thematically that stuff like if you do it too hard, it's it's not very subtle and it kind of weakens your uh, I don't know it kind of weakens the it cheapens the game. But if you do it a little bit, they're fun, right? Like, there's certain kind of puzzles that are just fun. Like people love uh, all, uh, like food processing puzzle <laughs> in Infinite Factory. There's these two food processing puzzles where you like round up little critters and like freeze pack them. And uh, and then there's one where you get a giant whale and you have to chop it up into like whale meat and then package that. Up. <laughs> and like people love those puzzles, not mechanically but thematically. Like they're just really fun. And I think um, like you know military stuff and like conflict is is very prominent in video games. And so making puzzles that talk about military stuff is always like a it captures people's attention. You know, it's 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 a good thing to have as like part of a, a huge repertoire of things that you're you're building in a game like this. Um, but the funny thing about that in that uh, in Shenzhen IO, it's not really sinister. I think a lot of people kind of misinterpret it because they think like, oh, China, military, sinister. But like, it's actually just like, you know, like it's for military contractors or whatever. And like, that's just a part of life, right? Like, you know, people make guns and people make toasters. And like, when you're making stuff, it almost doesn't, it's less about who you're making it for and more about just what you're making. And uh, and so that was sort of what that got at in, in Shenzhen IO. But is that an intentional message that you are getting absorbed in your work to the point where you're not really thinking about what it is that you're making? Well, I don't even think there's necessarily negative con- like there uh, whether or not there are negative consequences for making that product in Shenzhen IO are, are like a matter. It's an open question, and that was what the characters explored it right. Like that Carl uh, is is a maybe some kind of pacifist or something. He's uncomfortable with the idea of making military stuff, but some of the other characters aren't uncomfortable with it, and they see it as just like a, a natural part of life, you know. And I, I think that. It's less about us having a message and more about us just like giving that idea room to to breathe and explore itself like through these characters, you know, and that's why I think it's important to have like as many, you know, a lot of characters um, to let them like explore ideas on their own instead of us just trying to channel a message through. Okay, it, it like you say, Shenzhen, it was set in uh, China in a, an industrial center. Um, how did you go about researching what, what life was like there, what it was like for electronics workers there? Yeah, I mean, so there's there's a lot of material out there. I've been interested in Shenzhen as a place for, you know, God, like 10 years, ever since, it, like, uh, there's this guy, Bunny, Bunny Huang, who, um, he, he's like an engineer, I don't actually know, <laughs> he, he's, uh, he's like an inventor and an engineer and stuff, and he, um, he worked on this thing called the Chumbi years ago, <laughs> and, like, wrote a book about hacking Xboxes, so he's like a hardware guy, and he, like started going to I guess maybe it was when he was doing the Chumbi like he started going to Shenzhen because that's where they were making them because that's where everything gets like electronic gets made in China and he started writing about it and just like the like there there was sort of this like organic maker culture that grew like you know there was maker culture kind of developing over here but there's like this uniquely Chinese version that was growing also in Shenzhen where they have all the parts there so you can make anything and he started writing about this and writing about like sort of like the knockoff phones like there's a period of time in China where before like everybody had smartphones they just had like kind of like 3G shitty phones but the components were so simple that like you could basically find any like a phone shaped like anything because people were just making like small batches of just the weirdest cell phones you can imagine and they were like not really real like they're kind of maybe bootleg but not really and like it was like now like you know now the engineers and chain companies in china are like designing new products and like they're they've sort of 
grown to a different phase than back then. But I mean, since, you know, it's been years that he's been writing about this and I've always found the idea of Shenzhen, like the, the place where all your electronics are made and like the idea of sort of glamorizing that that's, that's always been something that appealed to me. That's another game idea that for years I've wanted to make a game that glamorizes the idea of Shenzhen. At first it was like new Shenzhen, a space station where people are building stuff. But in, you know, when we actually came to make a game about Shenzhen, it was about actual Shenzhen. So yeah. we, we interviewed him, we interviewed uh, some people who lived in China. Like we, Specifically, we wanted to tell the story of an expatriate moving to China and working there, and not try to tell the story of somebody who uh, like natively was born and lived in China. Because I think for us, that's a lot less accessible. Uh, if we were to go to China, we would be as, as people going there, not people being born there. So uh, we interviewed some people who were there, like lived in China, uh, like Americans who moved there. Um, we read stuff, lots of stuff like that. We actually had somebody who was a native, like a native Chinese person who was an electrical or computer or electrical engineer who was at a school out here that Matthew, our writer, knew. And we, we talked to him about uh, a lot of like cultural stuff that we didn't quite get or like translating stuff that was like a diffi- difficult translation. Uh, it, was, it was good. So we had like a whole team of people who had all these different looks in, into the idea of living in Shenzhen. I think I've heard as well that you sometimes even get people who have worked in China as expatriates or, or oh, yeah. are working now in China telling you that it's accurate. Yeah, as far as I can tell, we nailed it. So that's I'm pretty proud of that. You've also spent some time making educational games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but are you happier doing things this way, making games that people will play for fun? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The educational, I mean, so the educational game phase, you know... Like, what do you know about the educational game? I don't know stuff? anything about it. Treat me like a child. Oh, God. Uh, Teach so, like, me about your educational games. Do, do, you know, do you know who News Corp is? Yes. Okay, so News Corp bought... There's this company called uh, Amplify Learning. They made educational software to help teachers. And it was very much like a... It was like Palm Pilot software. Like, ironically, I interviewed there out of college and ended up going to Microsoft instead. Um, but there's, they made this, like, weird product that helped teachers, like, work with their students and figure out, like, what they were weak in. And News Corp came along and just, like, bought them and then dumped a billion dollars into making a tablet-based curriculum. Uh, for unknown reasons. And so a tiny sliver of that billion dollars went to paying indie developers to make educational games for their tablets. And the project kind of, I don't want to call it a disaster, but there were like, it didn't really materialize. Like first they built, they built their own Android tablets, but then like one of the chargers like caught fire. And so they just like axed the entire thing to build their own hardware. And this is right as like iPad or Android was sort of losing out to iPads and like the educational tablet space. Turns out schools were squeamish about buying some weird, like, no-name Android tablets, and if they were going to buy hardware, they wanted, like, Apple stuff. So, um... And they probably don't want it to go on fire, either. Well, I mean, that was... If they really wanted it, I think they could have gotten past the part where the charger caught on fire or was smoking <laughs> or whatever. Like, that's just, you know, it was it was test hardware. But, like, I think that just there's a confluence of events that kind of killed their building their, them building their own tablet. And then uh, they were, they got they kept doing the software, but then they, they were going to, like, port it to iOS. But then that kind of fell apart because it turns out it's really hard to sell that kind of stuff. And it's hard to make a curriculum. And it's hard to make textbooks, especially when you don't really have the experience. And, like, with a project that big, it's it's hard to manage it, right? Um, the games part ended up getting sold off to, uh, like an Irish, like global company that does mobile games. And so like all the games, like, like after they kind of, I guess they shut down the whole thing and like, I don't even know. Yeah. The games part ended up being sold off to somebody else. And so we, we may, but in that brief period of time when they were burning through a billion dollars on this curriculum, they paid us a little bit of money to make a couple educational games and, 
the thing that really like was terrible about it is that no one really got to play them and like trying to make a game that's educational i think you almost end up making something that's no more educational than if you weren't trying at all to make a game that's educational all right so give me an example what were these educational games doing? so so we made three games so the first game we made was called metabo sim and it's like a oh god i don't even know what you'd call it it's like a it's like pinball, but you could like directly manipulate the ball, and then there's like 50 balls, and so you're flicking them through this machine that's like a model of like a human digestive system. <laughs> I think it's really clever, but that's what happens when you make your own games. So I thought it was really clever, but yes, yeah, so like you'll you'll like those the lungs are like a region, and you'll push a mechanical button, and then like this like the lungs like mechanically breathe out and then breathe back in, and they have all these little air particles, and you like take the you flick the oxygen out of the lungs into the bloodstream, and then you push a mechanical <laughs> button to pump the heart. And then, um, like it, it cycles through the blood system. And then when it comes by, like the place where you need to react the oxygen with, like the starch that you broke down that was eaten, then you like flick them together. And when you flick like one glucose molecule into one oxygen molecule, they it pops into and it creates energy and like waste. <laughs> then you have to like get the carbon. Like if you don't like exhale the carbon dioxide, it'll like fill up your body and you won't be able. To create- <laughs> like it's it's really fucking cool, but like. No one played it, and, like, when the students played it, they didn't really appreciate it, because it turns out that, like, that's a cool way to reinforce these ideas, but it will not teach them to you. Like, no, it's just, it'll just teach you that marbles are bouncing around inside a body. Exactly. And if you sit, like, middle schoolers down, like, Chris, like, you can you can scarcely get them to concentrate on, like, something. Like, middle schoolers are like squirrels. Like, they just, they're, they're doing their own thing, and they're high energy, and, like, they're not really there to learn. <laughs> they're there to just exist. And, and so trying to get them to sit down and play this game that we designed, like, thoughtfully to, like, be, like, a complex metaphor for these real-life systems, it's just, like, it's kind of lost on them. Like, they kind of tested it by, like, drilling them after and ask, giving them, like, a paper test. But, like, if you're giving somebody, like, a paper test after letting them play this experience, like, you're just undermining the experience. And it's, like, okay, like you're just trying to get yeah. them to recite facts. If you, you just want them to recite facts, just teach them the facts and get them to recite them. So, like, it's... <laughs> so did that experience then help you when it came to making games for people who hopefully aren't squirrels? The only thing it helped me learn is to never do anything like that again. <laughs> right, like it was. I by the by the time we were working on the third game, I was actually getting really depressed because, like, I, I was getting hit with these really existential questions. Like, does it matter that we're teaching this stuff? Like, does it? Like, what does learning even mean? Right? Like, what? Do, like, why do we teach people what we teach them? Should we be teaching? Like, I started. You know, we we sort of started thinking about all these. I started thinking, I guess, about all these big questions that were just like made it really obvious that these games were pointless. Combined with the fact that they had such low, like, like the games didn't get out there. No one played them. Right. Even now, like they're technically like some of them are free to play and you can like buy them and there's like upgrade. I don't know. There's like some sort of monetization scheme on top of it. It's like, is anybody going to play this game? Not really. There's way better games on mobile. There's games that are legitimately fun, you know, and then we're trying to like jam all this educational stuff into games that I think are still kind of interesting. But like they're not really made for their target target audience. I don't get kids. Yeah. So the big thing I learned was to never try anything like that again. I much more. We actually sell a lot of copies of our games now to schools. Oh yeah, I don't. I don't know if it's safe to say that, um, like, our games that are being sold to schools are helping anybody learn anything. But like, people are playing them, probably. Well, at least you're and, not saying it's an educational game when you sell it. You're just saying it's a game. Yeah, I, I feel like it's more honest, and I feel like it just. I feel like we make better stuff. I don't think something has to be edu- like labeled educational and be like, like educational within the framework of education to actually be like educational in like a, a philosophical way. And so I think that our games are more educational in a philosophical way, despite not fitting into any curriculum. And like, I don't care that they don't fit into a curriculum. I think they're probably better because they don't fit into a curriculum. 
it's it's just like this weird like cabal like that there's like a there and there literally is like a weird like shadowy cabal that determines like what goes into like educational stuff. I mean, I guess they're not really like a cabal, but like there 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 are people who make the policy about what we teach people and why, and like the, 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 what we think of as education is just their opinion, man. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so I, I think that we're making the best educational games we've ever made, and they're also the best entertainment games we've ever made, and I think that I think that's good. You sold Zachtronics, I think it was a couple of years ago, maybe. Uh, like a year, uh, year and a half, yeah. It was Alliance Games Studio. Yeah, I don't even know what they're called. Alliance Digital Media. Alliance. <laughs> um, I think it's Alliance Digital Media, but they uh, have a bunch of different names. They're different like compartments. Correct. We are we are a like first party studio for a hybrid like developer publisher distributor called Alliance Digital Media. All right, but why did you why did you sell it? So I worked at Valve briefly. I don't know if you know. Yeah. So I so so we we I was doing Zactronics for a while. We made Spacecam, and then I broke off and went full like full time with Zactronics after Spacecam. And we made Ironclad Tactics, and we made Infinifactory, and we made TIS one hundred, and. Uh, for whatever reason, after all of that, I, I felt like I was stuck and I wanted to f- just kind of put Zactronics to the side. And so we, we sort of like phased out Zactronics. We like got everybody out, made sure that it was, everybody had nice soft landings. And then I went to work at Valve and I worked there for 10 months on VR stuff and, uh, didn't really, I guess like the, the funny thing is that stepping away from indie games showed me exactly what I was missing. And like Valve had always been like this place where like I'd talk to people from Valve. Robin Walker was a really big Space Chem fan. And um, like I always knew it was an opportunity, like a possibility, you know, and I didn't really know what it was like there. And I didn't really and I, I actually don't really have a lot of experience working at like AAA game studios. I worked like briefly in a couple kind of like on my way to Zectronics, but not really. And so it seemed like maybe there was something there, like the ability to work on big projects and the ability to work on stuff that mattered more. And I think what I found being at like the best game studio you could work at is that like, God, I really like making my like dumb little games that don't matter. And there's actually something really freeing about being able to work on a project with a small budget where in the scheme of things, nobody gets mad at you if it sucks. Like, (laughs) you know, like you can make stuff that's like, you can make stuff that's, that's maybe not optimal, but expresses yourself. And, and I really, like, I really discovered very quickly how much I missed that. And so I worked on the VR stuff and it was really fun working on the VR stuff. I feel like I, I, I look at all the people who did like Silicon Valley stuff in like the, like the late nineties and how exciting it must've been. And I feel like I kind of got my own little taste of that working on VR. When I was at Valve, but, um, uh, pretty quickly I wanted to get back into doing what I used to do. Yeah. And I, one of the, the, one of the big reasons that we shut down Zytronics is that running an indie studio is really stressful. Um, especially when you make weird games that are like dubiously profitable. Um, and when you're getting older and have to like live a normal adult life. And, uh, and so like having, I mean, we're at Zytronics, like every game was basically like, okay, this is all of our money. Like we're going to take all of our money and we're going to bet it all on every, you know, bet everything on this next game and said, better do well. And like, that turns out it's really stressful and that's kind of like creatively limiting. It's it's hard to be fearless and make what you think you need to make when you have that specter hanging over you of that like oh if, if this game doesn't do well we're done uh, kind of makes you just want to cash out and just not not make another game <laughs> yeah. so um, so that was like a large part of my motivation for going to Valve but I, we managed to come in contact with Alliance through like weird sequence of events that was actually connected back to the educational games had we had we not done the educational games we would never be like 
we would have never met the people at Alliance and would have never ended up working with them. And <laughs> so that's kind of funny. Um, but yeah, and then we, we sold the company and we work for them now and we made Shenzhen IO and they're like ultra supply. I can't imagine working for like a better company. They, they let us do our thing. <laughs> but I mean, what, why did you make the decision? Like, why not just hire somebody? If the business stuff is stressful and you don't want to do it, isn't, would it not be possible to hire somebody to do the business stuff for you as an employee? You can't hire someone to own a business for you. You can hire someone to run a business, but then you have to make sure they're not doing a shitty job, and then you have to pay them, so now they're making it even harder to be profitable because you've got somebody who thinks they're a fancy executive, you know, taking all your money. So I think that was the big thing is that you can't... It's very hard to offload the stress of owning a business rather than running it. But, I mean, isn't Alliance basically doing the same... fulfilling the same role, being the... Being the fancy executive in this relationship no because they they own it right and so they're actually bearing the finance they, they bear the risk in a way that we used to personally have to bear we are we just make games and we're creative and we get you know like we're, we're there obviously like if we if we do like a terrible job and uh <laughs> and like make tons of really expensive unprofitable games like the relationship will you know that might not survive that or whatever <laughs> but but like we don't we no longer have to worry that if one of our games fails we're just out of business because that was all of our money right they are bigger than us and so it sort of it mitigates a lot of the risk of making an indie like making indie games okay it turns out that like owning i don't know like if if you have somebody who who like supports you creatively it doesn't really matter if you like own the business or not it's better i think if you don't it's the the more hats you have to wear the more those hats start to fight with each other and they don't all fit on your head you know <laughs> Yeah, and that's what I mean. Like, I think we're actually, like, I, I, if I could make the decision over again, I'd make it, you know, like a thousand times, I'd make it every time, just because I, I really think that this is, it is, it is strictly superior to the situation we used to be. I mean, I mean, like the first game we made was Shinjin IO, right? I would have never made that game in the past because it seemed like, oh, there's no, like, that's too scary of a decision to make, right? Like, to, to bet everything on Shinjin IO, like, that's crazy. But yet it actually did really well, and, like taking being a, being comfortable and safe and, and being able to take risks allows you to take risks and that's where good stuff happens. I'm gonna let you go um, soon, but for the sake of um, my coworker Alice, who uh, invented the term Zach likes, <laughs> I would I, I'd be um, it'd be bad of me not to ask you how you feel about it. I personally use the term Zachtronic style puzzle game, but uh, I'm not gonna say no to Zach likes. I guess you secretly like it. I, you can't use it yourself, right? Like you can't. You can't if, you're, if, you're, if you're Zach, you can't go around calling games Zach's, Zach likes. That sounds horribly pretentious. So I always say Zachtronic style puzzle games, but you are welcome to call them whatever you want. All right. Thank you very much for uh, talking to us. Okay. Take care. All right. Thanks again, man. Yeah. See ya.